Especially of an animal in a wild state after escape from captivity or domestication. Alcatraz, Arab Spring, one billion rising. Freedom schools, the Maroons, rebellion thriving. We've been rising since the dawn of creation. Sun in the blood of our veins, liberation runs. Welcome to Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I'm your host, Angelina Thupadia. We begin with a content note or trigger warning. Here at Feral Visions, we go deep, and that often means courageously addressing white supremacist, imperialist, heteropatriarchal, capitalist, settler colonial violence in order to support healing and transformation. Bypassing isn't an option, the only way is through. The time for denial is over, and today's a great day to keep it real. Amidst the show's focus on unapologetic truth-telling, then, please practice excellent self and community care while listening. On today's episode of Feral Visions, we're looking at resurgent cultures of consent. We know that consent is vital. Yet, is consent even possible within a neo-colonial society like the U.S. or Canada in 2017? To begin to answer this question, this show offers an invitation to nuance our understanding of consent in substantive ways. Specifically, we'll talk about consent in a historical framework, as opposed to being devoid of context. In particular, we'll discuss consent from a decolonial perspective, including consensual allyship. Next, we'll address the personal and the political aspects of consent, so to speak. By that, I mean both the bodily consent we can extend as individual persons and the free, prior, and informed consent that's necessary at the level of international law when working with indigenous communities, as enshrined within the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Furthermore, we care so much about consent that we're not even stopping at human-centeredness in this dialogue. Instead of getting stuck in anthropocentrism, the way that many humans do with deadly consequences, we're even delving into practices of consensually relating with non-human life, the elements and our planet. Take that, rape culture. Finally, we delve briefly into accountability, ethics, and power dynamics within the university system, otherwise known as the academic-industrial complex. To support our unlearning and learning on these topics, I'm immensely honored to be in dialogue with Dr. Sarah Hunt. Dr. Hunt teaches at the University of British Columbia in the First Nations and Indigenous Studies Department and the Department of Geography as an assistant professor of critical Indigenous geographies. She's Kwakwakawak from Salalis and has spent most of her life as a guest in Lekwungen territories. Her writing and research emerged within the networks of community relations that have fostered her analysis as a community-based researcher, with a particular focus on issues facing women, girls, and two-spirit people. 
Dr. Hunt received her BA and MA from the University of Victoria and her PhD from Simon Fraser University. She was awarded a Governor General's Gold Medal for her doctoral dissertation, which investigated the relationship between law and violence in ongoing neo-colonial relations in BC, asking how violence gains visibility through Indigenous and Canadian socio-legal discourse and action. She continues to build on this work, exploring geographies of resistance and resurgence in the intimate, everyday relations of Indigenous people and communities. Sarah's writing has been published in numerous books and scholarly journals, as well as in popular media outlets, such as MediaIndigena.com, Decolonization.org, and op-eds for The Globe and Mail and CBC Aboriginal. Her most recent publications on Indigenous and decolonial thought include Everyday Decolonization, Living a Decolonizing Queer Politics, and Ontologies of Indigeneity, The Politics of Embodying a Concept. Dr. Hunt is co-editor of ACME, an international e-journal for critical geographies. She and I met up at an Indigenous self-determination course at Dechinta Center for Research and Learning in Denide, in the Northwestern Territories in Canada, earlier this summer. Without further ado, let's listen. Sarah, it is so great to reconnect with you. Thank you for your time and energy being able to connect this morning. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you. I'd like to begin by sharing my tremendous gratitude for the work that you do, certainly as an academic, but also as an activist. I'm just really sincerely appreciative of also how you model what it means to be an academic in a way that includes accountability. And so I'm also just personally so grateful to be able to learn from you and from the work that you're doing. So thank you so much for your work. Thank you. That means a lot. Would you like to tell us a little bit about the event that you emceed last night? How was that? Wonderful. Indigifem was called. It was part of the local queer film festival, but um, it was a combination of, of short films by Indigenous filmmakers and performance. So we had poetry and dance and song and all kinds of incredible performers. I used to do spoken word like a long time ago, <laughs> almost 20 years, maybe 20 years. So it was really, for me, the first time I've been in that kind of community environment, again, on the stage for quite a long time. So it just felt really good to be amongst um, other Indigenous people who are thinking about sexuality and gender and linking that. We had our themes were body sovereignty and sex sovereignty. So we were in whatever way people wanted to, you know, explore that. So it was really heartwarming and just felt very, people just yeah, I kept saying how good it felt to be in that community space. So it was wonderful. Oh, that sounds amazing. So on that front, then, how do you understand bodily sovereignty and sex sovereignty? I've done anti-violence work since I was a teenager. So really starting within my own family and sort of seeing it as my obligation to do that work. Yeah, just, just working in kind of intimate relation with members of my family and community. So I think that I have first sort of come to think about body sovereignty from that place of knowing the harms of colonization, the harms of especially intergenerational trauma, and then I guess becoming more involved in communities like queer communities, uh, also kind of, on the other hand, communities doing land defense who are thinking about sovereignty differently. I think all of that has really informed how I think about body sovereignty as well. So understanding that like the Native East Sexual Health Network does great work to think about sovereignty radiating outwards from our bodies like that really it has to start here and especially that our movements as Indigenous communities and our ability to restore 
ourselves fully, our, our cultures, our laws, that that isn't possible if we don't have that at a personal level. So kind of connecting the way that colonization has impacted our ability to have consent and to fully be, you know, seen as who we are and all those things. Without that, we will never fully have sovereignty or self-determination as peoples. Yeah, so for me, my anti-violence work, kind of an interpersonal level, really informs that in relation to connecting to land and those kinds of struggles as well. Thank you for that. So speaking of which, how do you understand consent? I know it would be a gift for Mm -hmm. our listeners to be able to hear some of how you understand the idea of consent. To start with Indigenous people, our ability to give consent has been compromised, obviously, and is constrained by power within colonization. You know, colonization has involved other people imposing their decisions about how our lives should be, whether that's our names for ourselves, you know, needing to have like English last names, for example, the names for territories, where we live, how we live, our everyday governance, decisions about our children, like really all aspects of our lives, or our consent hasn't really been factored in, (laughs) obviously, with colonization. So then on the other hand, if we think about consent, as we think about it with with our bodies and in our relationships with each other, really needs to be thought about in relation to other kinds of consent in our daily lives. So thinking about um, the institutions that we work in and how we can foster consent. So for me in my classroom, in my relationships with my colleagues, but also to think about how we came to be here. So on the coast here, I'm on Musqueam Territories, also known as Vancouver right now. And I'm from a coastal nation that we would not have been here historically if we didn't have the consent of the local peoples to be here. So, you know, thinking about how we came to be here without that consent, how do we reconcile those things in ourselves and the way we, we live here? And for me, being a good guest here means thinking about consent in my daily lives, how I can engage with the peoples of this land and then how I can model principles of consent in all areas of my life. So not just when it comes to interpersonal intimate relationships, but I guess physical intimacy, but other kinds of intimacy as well. And to me, that's really like a decolonial approach to thinking about consent is to make those connections that are more than, yeah, I guess just the typical way that we think about consent within law or something like that. Yeah, thank you so much for that intervention and your work. I'm so appreciative of that. So it sounds similar to this idea of consensual allyship that I know you've done some writing about. Could you talk a little bit about what that idea means for our listeners that might not have heard of it before? Yeah, so consensual allyship is really an idea that I first heard about through Jessica Danforth, who is the founder of the Native Youth Sexual Health Network, which does amazing work in the States and in Canada, actually, and all over the place. I think especially, you know, several years ago when I Don't Know More was really big and then we've seen in the States recently with the mobilization around the Dakota Access Pipeline that there are a lot of people kind of jumping to claim allyship with Indigenous peoples. And I even remember someone that I knew had a hat that said Indigenous ally on it. You know, like really, you can buy this hat and just put it on and then you're, you're an ally. And so in a lot of different contexts that is not necessarily done actually in relationship with or communication with the people you're in allyship with, but just saying, I'm going to show up at the rally or I'm, I don't know, whatever people are deciding for themselves what allyship looks like. And so she just had this concept of consensual allyship. It really requires relationship because it means to know you have an invitation to work in allyship or other people's consent for you to act kind of in their name, right? That you're saying, I'm working as an ally to these people, that they're claiming you instead of you claiming (laughs) them. That, uh, yeah, having that consent means that you 
have some sense of what people are asking you to work with them on or, or for. To me, also requires like a really localized form of allyship in that often people think Indigenous struggles are all the same, but in fact, you know, with local initiatives, allyship might look very different than what you might conceive of. It might be doing work behind the scenes, it might be making a bunch of sandwiches, who knows what, there's all kinds of things that it might mean. It means that you're not going to claim to be doing work in someone's name without their consent or invitation. So I think there's so many ways that people are always looking for people to work with them, like invitations to come to events, to, you know, where I live on the reserve in Victoria, there's constantly invitations for people to come to see like youth celebrating some achievement they've had or a fundraiser. And there's not often a lot of people from outside the community that come. So those are great you know, examples of an invitation to be an ally. It's not as glamorous being on the front lines of a protest, which is often when people claim allyship, but you know, those kind of smaller community events, I think there's lots of examples of those. Can you share with our listeners how you understand rape culture, please? Well, what I said before about all the layers of imposition and coercion that have occurred through colonization, I mean, to me, that is the foundation of rape culture. So it's not just about force at the level of our bodies, but that that's embedded within a larger culture. Colonization is founded on, you know, categories of people within hierarchies where some people have that power and some people do not. And to me, it's not an abstract sort of thing. Like, I think there is a movement increasingly, especially in academic circles, but sometimes in activist circles as well, and recognizing some of us go across those, <laughs> those realms of activists and academia, in which decolonization is kind of about ideas, that it's about just categories or binaries or ways of seeing the world that are colonial in nature. And then decolonial work is about unpacking that and, and thinking differently. But, you know, I think it's really important to ground this work in the material outcomes of the imposition of those categories and that way of thinking that we can't really do decolonial work through ideas, that it has to be grounded in material everyday realities. And, you know, recognizing that we all came to be here, that we're, we're all in this culture together because of colonization. And, you know, for me, all other things spring out of that racism sexism, patriarchy, ableism, all of that is made possible by colonization. And it's interesting to me, I think in the States, my experience has been that there's less of a, like an integration of an anti-colonial, not just again, a theorizing, but of a thinking about this place that we speak from. And there is a recognition of colonization a long time ago, but not that it's still ongoing. So recognizing the settler colonial nature of our of our nations and then understanding how yeah how colonial ways of thinking are enacted every day and how structure our lives our community how we envision indigenous um, our relationships with indigenous people so for me then rape culture isn't just about gender and race sometimes it's just gender sometimes people think of race but that uh it's really deeply embedded in larger colonial power structures and if you really think about the the fact that colonization has involved the imposition of power structures that have denied Indigenous people the ability to live where we want, to raise our families how we want, to have the names that we call ourselves, to be in the kinds of relationships that we want, family and kinship structures, like really the 
the building blocks of our building blocks is a kind of colonial term. <laughs> the, the foundational elements of our worlds uh, that has been denied, and so all of that, of course, shapes rape culture at the level of our our bodies. But it's not just just about sexual violence; it's really about all of these other forms of violence that are interconnected. It's really important that anti-violence movements have included, come to be more inclusive of Indigenous peoples' concerns, but. I haven't seen a lot of instances of anti-violence movements and people, for example, standing in solidarity with Indigenous peoples' attempts to give consent over our lands or to get our children back and have consent over how our children are treated by the state. Those are about, That's about rape culture, too, in my mind, because it's all about the ability to give consent, to have agency, and to be considered a person who, I guess, to disrupt those hierarchies, those categories in which rape culture is situated. Yeah, so much more of a sort of politics of inclusion, so to speak, presuming that if you just include different communities in a certain kind of work, that's sufficient unto itself, as opposed to actually not only taking leadership, right, from other folks asking why certain community members might not have been a part of work to begin with at the outset, and then also actually structurally reassessing how people understand the work itself. I do think also it's important for people to recognize that just because you don't know about something or that something is happening doesn't mean it's not happening. So, so much of the formal organizing around all kinds of issues and all kinds of struggles, it can assume like nobody's done this before, you know, we're the ones fighting for change and not recognizing that there are perhaps other groups who are even more invisible and more marginalized are also doing that work. It's not about an organization including indigenous people at last but you know recognizing oh there's this entirely parallel movement happening or efforts we just don't know about it because it's out of our view and that's for me you know a lot of the, the anti-violence work that i've done in trying to understand that work has made me come to terms with the fact that so much of the on the ground work is only seen by people who are involved in it and especially around sexual violence and other kinds of violence that it might put people at risk to be public about it. And so it's within an intimate circle. It doesn't mean there's not like exciting and wonderful things going on, but that it's not necessarily online or there's no website about it or <laughs> people didn't necessarily get a grant or whatever. It's just happening and recognizing, again, if you begin to nurture those relationships, that things might come into view that we wouldn't know about because we're not involved in it, right? And so... Well, an example that comes to mind is a long time ago, I was working with organizations in northern BC, and a group from Vancouver had been given a, a grant to go around doing education around sexual exploitation in the north. And the organizations in the north were like, well, we've been doing this for 10 years, you know, we've got materials, we're talking about it in terms that are locally relevant, it's guided by local people. We don't need people from Vancouver coming up, and quite frankly, the way that they're framing this issue is not relevant to us. The ways that they're envisioning even the communities, like having a mall or, you know, they were sort of identifying like, your kid goes to the mall, this might happen. Or talking about street corners, they're like, we don't have street corners, we don't have malls, you know. And there was this real resistance of like, we're the experts. We don't need people from the city coming to tell us. And that was a really good learning moment for everybody to understand the expertise at a local level and to know this kind of drop-in, like, savior sort of approach. 
was very destructive and it was great. People were not having any of it. And I think that is an example of remembering the knowledge and wisdom that is everywhere in different communities. That's such an important story. Thank you so much for sharing that. Something that I have observed, especially actually among people of color, maybe including some native folks, a sort of brown savior industrial complex, if you will, and the presumption that if you're not white, thus, right, you're sort of beyond reproach or actions are beyond scrutiny, which doesn't even really begin to scratch the surface of the kind of accountability that we're capable of, as I understand it. And so really taking much more seriously, especially if you're getting funding for something, like you say, I love those stories of communities actually talking with foundations and the like and saying that person shouldn't have funding for doing this work in our community that we didn't have any kind of say in determining or designing. So really honoring from our different positionalities what accountability can look like, especially if we have institutional affiliations, funding, various levels of systemic privilege. I know that's something that you name, especially as a professor and with a university affiliation. Could you share a little bit of your process uh, with our listeners around how you understand your accountability in light of the various access to resources to social capital and the like that you have, especially as a professor? Yeah, I'm still uncomfortable, to be honest. (laughs) Sure. I always put quotations around professor. And in fact, my mom pointed out at a community gathering when people were asking what I do, I just say, oh, I work at UBC. I don't say I'm a professor. I'm still uncomfortable with that a little bit. I guess I realize I have a different trajectory to getting here than most other faculties. So I started doing community-based research in 2000 and worked for about 10 years before I decided to do my PhD, doing like little contracts and doing community-based research and education, most of which was aimed at creating tools with and for communities, mostly around violence and health and justice issues. And I really only came back to do my PhD because A, I realized that I I had the skills over the years to write and do research, that it was an opportunity to do research that was meaningful to me and the communities I work with, but also that the kind of professors I wanted to have when I was an undergrad, that it was important that there were those people here. So to take up the space and to try to do something different here, that was an important role. If I could do it, that maybe I should try. Also, that there's a ton of resources, and I guess I've had this realization a number of times over the years that... If we don't apply for those grants, other people will. If we don't write those stories, other people will speak for us. If we don't write those books, other people will do it on our behalf. That's always what I've done, you know, doing community-based research. It was only when communities said, said, hey, we want you to do something on this. Can you try to find some funding to do some research to work with us? I finished last year the project with the Youth Council for the Canadian Aboriginal AIDS Network, and it was Indigenous youth who said, we want to do research on the term at risk and how it re-stigmatizes us, that we're not just at risk. What other ways can we think about this? So they asked us to apply for a grant. We got the grant. We trained them to do research. We trained them to do analysis. We did some arts-based analysis. And then they wanted to put out a, an information sheet. And to me, that is exactly why I'm here. <laughs> um, you know, you need to have a professor to get certain grants. 
so I can be the one to help facilitate that. And it's really a way to redirect resources into the hands of community members. And research is essentially just knowledge creation, and we've always done that. Before we were allowed to go to university, which Indigenous people weren't always allowed to do, in fact, weren't allowed to go past grade 10, I think, without giving up their status. We've always been creating new knowledge through gathering stories, through engaging in different kinds of processes. I think this can be a continuation of that important work. I mean, recently I've been wanting to do some new projects around coastal law in everyday life in our homes and families. So I've been turning to my family members and especially the survivors in my community to get their direction and make sure what I do is useful. That's ultimately, there's no point otherwise unless it's useful. So yeah, that's kind of how I have come to see it. Thank you for that. Yeah, I can only imagine, I love imagining actually, if more researchers and folks that work within academia were to take community accountability seriously, how transformative that could be. Shifting research from a sort of four-letter word in so many communities to actually being life-affirming, beneficial, useful in terms of all of the different work that folks are doing. It's incredible to imagine the possibilities because when you do see the folks doing that work, it's like one person in community actually leveraging those institutional resources and the time and the space intentionally that academics do have can make such a difference. And so thank you so much, especially for your naming some of these things in a way that I see, unfortunately, very few folks that do work in academia doing. And so I'm also just really grateful to be able to have the space to be able to share some of your perspective with folks around this, because, you know, I mean, I hear even say women of color in the academy in positions of mentorship saying to grad students, oh, apply for funding to do your research on a place that you feel like traveling to. That's just like completely divorced from anything other than just the sort of individualistic, you know, desire or want that's totally decoupled from impact and what would actually be necessary to be able to have any kind of grounding and supporting whether it's frontline communities, the communities you're always already a part of. And so really sharing alternative ways of being in institutional spaces is just so important for folks that do navigate those realms. So thank you so much for how you do that and for how you've shared some of your process. So hopefully that can be illuminating for other folks as they're trying to figure out what's really aligned for them. It requires work. I just want to name that, that to take up a role within an institution differently, it does require constantly resisting the ways that the university seeks to extract knowledge and energy from us for their own ends. And I think that's important, especially for racialized and Indigenous folks in the academy, that the extra kind of labor we're asked to do, the committees we're asked to be on, the posters people want to put our faces on, like all of that stuff does take work to say no and to redirect our energies into meaningful kinds of work. Because I am accountable. My goal was never to be a professor. It was My goal was to do work that was helpful and meaningful within the communities I work with. So people should also be aware of that. Other people who are asking us to do things, to know, for example, trying to add our name to a grant once it's already been written, it's not going to work. I say no to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Unless Indigenous people and communities have an active role and are able to shape that work it's not something I'm interested in supporting just for the sake of getting a grant like that's not a goal unto itself right and so this sort of way that institutions try to train us to 
do certain kinds of work that counts in a particular way, whether it's peer-reviewed publications or, or grants or whatever, that it takes constant work to see that in motion and ensure that we're comfortable and can maintain our accountability even while we're in this system. And, and it's true. I see, like you said, I see other, other senior faculty just expecting a cultural norm that you're like churning out certain kinds of work. And that's not necessarily meaningful at all. So yeah, I had kind of made a decision recently, I guess last year I was organizing some rally and I organize various things that don't count on my CV, obviously, <laughs> just like <laughs> I do I, in part of my community work and realized, oh, this could maybe put me at risk. Like there is this thing about untenured professors speaking out and then I realized that's not why I'm here. That's not my goal to just get tenure. So if getting tenure means not engaging in meaningful work, why would I put my energies there? So I think it is a kind of precarious position at the same time as we have a lot of, there's a lot of power and responsibility that comes with being in the academy. Yeah, thank you for your clarity around that. It is really inspiring. Can you share a little bit with our listeners about some of the community organizing work that you are up to these days, either on campus or off campus? So I'm new to this city and have been, well, I'm newly returned. I was here before. So yeah, I've been involved in some work around sexual violence on campus and I've been invited to do some work with community groups locally. So mostly just building those relationships. I continue to do work with organizations in different places. So around the national inquiry, around missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, working with families who are really struggling with the way that the inquiry, I'm sure, I don't know if you've seen, but there's been a lot of problems with the process Mm -hmm. and uh, lack of trust in that process and people feeling shut out of it questions and concerns about how two-spirit and trans women are being included, and really they're not, um, concerns about all kinds of concerns. So yeah, I've been doing work to figure out what I can do to work in solidarity with those folks. And then also I continue to do on-the-ground work around violence. I would say that the majority of that is, um, some of it's organizing, like there's there's annual marches and things that I'm involved with. but. Also just the day-to-day stuff, so being accountable to my relatives and the people in my community who are ongoingly experiencing um, abuse, that that's really where my most intimate forms of organizing come from. And I do think that's an important way to think differently about organizing is that it's not always about a public uh, intervention, but that organizing is also required around everyday kinds of things that the state and systems don't give us or don't do well. And that might mean organizing court support for someone who has an abusive partner. It might mean bringing people food when they need it. I think that's important to value that as kind of meaningful forms of accountability. I also continue to do work locally and nationally around supporting people who are engaged in sex work and especially Indigenous folks who are left out of anti-violence organizing and conversations quite often and again are spoken for and not invited to speak for their own life experience and the complexities of that and the best ways to lessen violence and that. So I just sort of am on call and (laughs) if I need it, but also supporting local initiatives to bring people together to have conversations, especially Indigenous folks who have that experience, to talk about ways to have their voices heard within anti-violence movements, including at the inquiry that's happening right now. So that's some of the stuff I'm doing. I feel honored to be in those conversations. 
Thank you so much for sharing that. And especially this piece around those everyday acts. So acknowledging that the work that we do doesn't all show up on a CV or a resume or a website ever necessarily. And so we really miss out on the scope of possibilities for both what we're capable of and then also what other folks and communities are always already doing. If those are the kinds of spaces where we're looking to see, you know, the clues of, say, a title or a particular kind of organizational role as indicating that someone is doing the work, so to speak, whatever that looks like, which can so often be the kinds of things that especially depending upon the fields that we're working in should not be on a website. So yeah, I'm just really appreciative of your naming, especially when we're talking about anti-violence work and work with folks that might not be trying to be in the public eye with that level of visibility, how important that kind of nuanced understanding is. Can you share if there are any resources in particular or organizations that you find to be doing really moving work around the topics we've been discussing that might be great for listeners to be able to support and or learn more from? Do you have any recommendations for groups that you would really like to share your gratitude with and raise the visibility of? resource that came out this year it's on a website called landbodydefense.org it was a collaboration between is it the women's earth alliance i always get their name wrong i think that's it and the adp sexual health network and they did work in both canada and the united states around communities that have been impacted by resource extraction and looking at the connections between destruction of land and and violence toward at an interpersonal level and thinking about the intergenerational impact of environmental degradation and the ability to make decisions about fertility and sexual violence and all of those things. So there's a really excellent report on that website used for doing education in communities. It's you know good from youth all the way up. And to me, that kind of on-the-ground knowledge is just not talked about or it's not visible within academic sources in this kind of real way. So I really value that work so much. Yeah, I really, I mean, the Native Youth Sexual Health Network, I say I'm their biggest fan. I think they do incredible work. It's youth-led, and they do really incredible work with young people. They've done all kinds of work for quite a long time, and they are often looking for support and resources. And they have a ton of great things you can look at on their website. Oh, there's also a really great website resource for, call it Starts With Us, and it's started by and led by a number of organizations, but including Families of Sisters in Spirit, which is a independent kind of grassroots organization to do work around missing and murdered women. It was started by Bridget Tolley, whose mom was killed by the police in Quebec, and there's been no answers in her death. So Bridget Tolley started Families of Sisters in Spirit, and also a group called No More Silence in Toronto. Audrey Huntley, they and others have started this website that is intended to be a place to talk about missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people in a grassroots kind of way. So they have stories that families have submitted about their loved ones. They have also a page that's about two-spirit and trans women, which is really missing within, like it's just sort of invisible within the national kinds of state-led approaches. So that's another great website. 
And is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners more broadly based upon everything that we've discussed so far? I can't think of anything. We talked about a lot. So I just thank you for the conversation and the ongoing work you're doing. And it's really great to talk to you. So Mm -hmm. thank you. Same. Thank you so much. And so if folks wanted to learn more about your work or get in touch with you, I know that you have a Twitter handle. What would be the best ways for folks to be able to learn more about the work that you're doing? Yeah, so on Twitter, I'm the Sarah Hunt, because Sarah Hunt was taken. Sarah Hunt is, in fact, a small young dancer, I think, on like some <laughs> dance TV show. So that's why I have the Sarah Hunt. <laughs> and I have a link there to a podcast on decolonizing rape culture. And then I am in the works of putting a website together, which should be ready soonish, with links to community resources and videos and other kinds of things. So if you keep an eye out for that, I do have a link on my Twitter to a website with a bunch of my articles, but I also really prioritize, you know, creating accessible community work as well. So that'll be more possible to share on the website. But yeah, I think Twitter is probably a good a good place. I haven't been on there for the last couple months because I'm taking a little break over the summer, but I'll be back on there soon. Nice. Well, thank you so much for sharing everything that you did and for your time and energy with such generosity. I'm really appreciative of all the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you. It's wonderful to talk to you. That's it for today's episode of Feral Visions, a decolonial feminist podcast brought to you by Liberation Spring. I've been your host, Angelina Thupadia, and I thank you for listening. I'm also curious to know what this dialogue evoked for you. I invite you to post your reflections and questions in the comment section below to continue our collective journey of unlearning, remembering, and imagining. If you want to share feedback, such as segment ideas or potential guests you'd like to have on the show, email liberationspring at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow Feral Visions on SoundCloud, where you can find our show archive. If you'd like more information on this show's topic, check out liberationspring.com. Thanks to Catherine Petru and Nicole Gervasio of our technical production team and Climbing Poetry for our theme song. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. And in the meantime, let's make our ancestors proud. Freedom is ours. Freedom is ours.